Hello and welcome to Digiday's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the Digiday podcast examining the disruption in the digital media space from the 1990s to the current day. My name is Seb Joseph and I'm the senior newsletter here at Digiday. So what's coming up next is a deep dive into a pretty significant area in AdTech history, the rise and fall of agency trading desks. But before we jump into that, let's do a quick recap of where we left off in episode two. That episode covered the time when the ad tech world started shaping up into something similar to what we see today. We had a chat with Harry Paparo, who had ties to major players like DoubleClick during a crucial period, the aftermath of the dot-com bubble burst. That's when heaps of companies lost credibility and fell out of favour with investors. Moving on to episode three, we've got another fantastic guest, Joanna O'Connell, who was a key figure in the era that followed. She witnessed firsthand the rise and fall of agency trading desks. Joanna's resume is pretty impressive. From working at Razorfish, Publicist's trading desk, MediaMath and Forrester, to the marketing consultancy R through over three decades. I've got a feeling that I've accidentally added a few extra years to it, Corinna. Joanna, feel free to correct me on that later on. But regardless, Joanna's a walking encyclopedia when it comes to this period. And it's a period in ad tech where agencies started realising they were losing out on margins to ad tech vendors like ad networks, which we covered off in the previous episode. Plus, there was this growing belief that merging programmatic buying with marketing strategy and having one unified team overseeing it all would do wonders for clients. Enter the agency training desks. Between 2007 and 2010, all the big holding groups set these up. And for a good while, these desks were seen as a bright spot for their businesses. They played a vital role in helping these companies claw back some of the lost margins they used to enjoy. You were right in the thick of all of it, trying to figure out a way to sort of make this approach work effectively and sustainably for for publicists. Can you share how you got there? Like, what was it about the work that you and your colleagues were doing at Razorfish that made publicists turn to you for help following the acquisition? Sure. I'll start by saying three decades in the industry makes me sound super old. My bad, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It is 20 plus years. Uh, but yeah, I've been around a long time, but not yet 30 years, which I'm into my third decade. But uh, I've seen a lot. Uh, so to your point, back in the day when I was at Razorfish, um, we, I'll say this, when when I got interested in programmatic advertising, it actually came from a pretty pure and and I would say maybe in retrospect naive place. I was a media supervisor on a big bank account, and I was buying from every ad network under the sun, trying to hit CPA goals. And they were total black boxes, and the client would understandably ask, "Well, why is it working, or why is it not working?" And I literally had zero answer because I had zero insight into what was really happening with their dollars because I didn't control it. Um, so the the programmatic kind of log into a DSP and make decisions myself model was enormously appealing to me. So I just want to say that because I you know I came at it from that place truly like wow we should be doing it this way this is better um, and again we were still Razorfish uh, owned by Microsoft at that point. And had just had a lot of autonomy, frankly, um, and so got the blessing of the leadership at Razorfish um, under the kind of stewardship of Matt Greitzer, who was running the search practice at the time, to launch what would then become uh, known as an agency trading desk. We were called Adam Systems. 
Um, so I, I say some of this just to make clear that it wasn't for Publicis. Uh, it was for it was for Razorfish as an independent uh, agency. Um, and we did a lot of work to get clients excited about it. We did a lot of work to explore the platform space to make sure we were using the right tech at the time. Originally, it was with MediaMath, and then we shipped it over to Invite Media, which was acquired by um, by Google um, uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, but I think when Publicis did acquire us to the kind of hardier question, I believe that they saw that we had built something pretty thoughtful and pretty smart and that we were running campaigns as much ourselves as we could because the platforms were still pretty new um, and that we were doing a good job of getting internal stakeholders excited about it and doing a good job of telling the story to clients. And I think that was appealing to them. I also think that they just were not interested in agencies having their own desks inside of the Publicis family. And so just as a practical matter, they sucked us up into the central organization called Audience on Demand. Build on that then, like what kind of prompted Publicis to make that kind of call, right? Because it felt like a few of your contemporaries were swirling around, you know, the same idea at the same time. Was it... Was it a straightforward decision where agencies, you know, saw an opportunity to be innovative, but also kind of push back against, you know, the ad networks? Or was it more nuanced, um, perhaps, you know, in terms of the reaction to just where the market was at the moment, right? You've got the likes of Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, all emerging at that time. And they sort of posed the challenge, right, to less or more degree that to the, I guess, the conventional belief that advertisers and their agencies held all the influence. I don't know that that was yet really true. I just don't think, again, this is just from my standpoint as a person who was living through that time. I'm not sure that it was necessarily uh, a wholesale pushback against big tech. I think it really was, oh, wow, we should be doing this. This is better and smarter. And it requires expertise that allows us to charge more, which is Fair. I mean, you should charge more if you have, um, you know, really rarefied expertise in something that nobody else can do. Um, and so for sure, you know, all of the, I, I would say the big ones, you know, certainly Omnicom, IPG, WPP, Publicis, um, and actually I will say Havas at the time, we're, we're all circling around this saying, you know, we need to do something here. And probably in every case they had a person or a couple people that saw the opportunity and said we should do something. So part of me, to, you know, has to really say this was not some necessarily in my mind, you know, formal strategic at the top of these organizations kind of decision. These are like multi-thousand person organizations. I think it started with people on the ground just saying, hey, this is something we should do. And that got the attention of the organizations to say, wow, there's a margin opportunity here. And And by the way, you know, we believe it will be good for our clients. Um, so, you know, again, it was pr felt pretty grassroots to me until, you know, until people started to notice. And then it was like, oh, no, this is the thing. Let's make it a thing. Let's make it formal. Let's put rules around it. Let's create, um, you know, I hate the word mandates, but I think some of the holding companies had it. You know, let's create mandates around using these things for our agencies. Um, and that's when things started to really get, I think, a bit messy. When was that inflection point when you know, the penny did drop, I guess, and, you know, the holding groups did start to see the the commercial benefits of having these trading desks. 
That's good. I think they saw the commercial opportunity <laughs> probably 2010-ish. Okay, 2010, okay. Something like, something like that. I mean, that at least was when Publicis acquired Razorfish, put me in audience on demand, um, which was, again, their centralized group at Publicis. And I started kind of noticing the kind of internal machinations around go to the agency, talk to the agency, explain what it is, you know, and we're going to talk to the agency too as a holding company and say, hey, this is something you need to be thinking about. Um, th- that, At least in my experience, that's when it was happening. And that's kind of happening. And did, when did it start to feel, because you sort of touched on it in, in the previous sort of question, when did it start to feel that things were getting a bit messy? I think it was, I think it was kind of messy that whole time. Oh, okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, you had all these agency people that were used to doing things a certain way and they were being asked or told, no, 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 you know, you now need to carve out 5% or 10% or whatever it was of your display dollars, because at the time that's what we were talking about, really, um, and allocate it to this thing. Uh, and some of the agencies understood and were like, oh, this is uh, people actually, I should say, because again, it's individual people yep. inside the agencies saying, oh, yeah, okay, I think I get it. And this, these guys are good partners and I, I you know, I can, um, I can work with this. But, but we, but, you know, the model was like the holding company trading desks were like middlemen that didn't really get to see the clients necessarily. Okay. And so that model was problematic, I think. Out the gate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and we didn't do that at Razorfish. I was very client-facing at Razorfish. But this model of being like an internal only resource or requirement for the agency people, I feel like really kept the agency people, the client-facing people, uh, you know, uneducated, unsophisticated about what the opportunity was and meant that when clients asked them questions, they, had, they didn't have good answers. And so that was like a crappy experience all around for everybody. What happened when you tried to sort of raise those issues? Did they just get sort of cast to one side and people like, no, this is the way we want to do it because? It felt to me like that ship was a very large ship that had sailed. And so, you know, again, just for me personally, I left. You know, I left. I went to to Forrester and immediately started writing about it, frankly. (laughs) Um, because I had concerns about that model and I had a suspicion that clients were going to have concerns about it. And, you know, it didn't, again, it didn't come from, at the time, I think I, again, was a bit naive about how the agency client financial dynamics worked and, you know, maybe why agencies felt so compelled or holding companies that owned agencies felt so compelled to create new margin and revenue opportunities um, but I appreciate that much more now, certainly. At the time, I just think I looked at it and said, you guys are making a mistake. This is going to blow up in your faces. Well, is it fair to say then that the trading desk, the agency trading desk were kind of misused from, from the outset? You know, they should have been a solution that that made a lot of that kind of bloat you know, on the ad tech side, kind of go away. And instead, they kind of did the complete opposite. They compounded a lot of the the bad aspects of of, of that way of advertising. Yeah. I don't know if that's totally fair. Okay. I mean, because I also think that the people inside the desks were the people that were driving really cool innovation in in digital advertising and were pushing the envelope and doing cool things and learning how to use tech and or came from 
you know, inside the agency where they were already doing something very tech driven like search and were like, what's the next interesting thing that I can innovate on? So on the ground, I think there was a lot of good stuff that was happening. Um, it's more the model, I think, that was sort of dictated that I feel like maybe caused some challenges. The bloat thing is interesting. I mean, to me, that's not necessarily where you see bloat inside of agencies. Um, to me, you know, those groups were, again, set aside the model for a second. The work that they were doing was more innovative than a lot of the stuff that was happening in sort of traditional agency media machinations, mm. frankly. I should have been clear. When I meant bloat, I meant from a from an ad tech intermediary side. Right. Oh, I see. Okay, sure. Uh, I think that that is the natural byproduct of living in a capitalist society, quite frankly. Fair. I mean, you know, when, <laughs> you know, whenever, whenever there's an opportunity to build a company and get somebody to acquire you for a 10x multiple, or you're going to do it. So it was. It's true that the agencies, as giant spenders of money, would have been a very attractive. Um, attractive um, potential client base for an ad tech company, but uh, are they responsible for bloat? I mean, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it's fair to say because so much money was flowing through these guys, and because you know they weren't always the most sophisticated campaigns. Sometimes they were just spend the money by December kinds of campaigns. Um, certainly, um, that would attract you know ad ad tech little ad tech fish you know toward this giant whale. Yeah, because I guess I wonder how much from like the the broader ad tech or what direction the broader ad tech industry would have gone um, had the trading desk sort of model um, kind of panned out differently. Well, I mean, it sure would have taken a lot longer for sure. agencies um, to get good at this stuff because, again, I do think that these centralized groups, again, with all the pro- you know, I keep saying this as a caveat, with all the problems, I think. That existed with the model and 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 what kind of ended up creating some big drama. They were accelerators mm. of of more sophisticated ways of doing something inside of holding companies that had tens of thousands of people that were not doing it. <laughs> so if you hadn't had that acceleration, you would still have tens of thousands of people on the ground going uh, individually. Oh, there's a thing that I'm supposed to learn how to do now, and I don't. Why do I care? Or I'm afraid of change or whatever. And you would have had clients going, well, why aren't you good at this? Because this is a thing that's important and you are as are my agency and you should be good at this. So it, in some ways, you know, it was a very necessary accelerator. Yeah. But it, you know, but there were problems. Because that that's the thing as well, right? Like there was this idea that the trading desk kind of might, and I guess to some degree did make agencies kind of leaner, but in a way kind of smarter, right? They had attract kind of folks kind of keen on numbers and tech whilst also kind of making room for more kind of high-level business negotiations. I think some of those ideas definitely kind of panned out. Not everything kind of did, but um, I guess it, it, it don't feel like there were some positive aspects to all of this and, and not necessarily, it wasn't all bad. No, no, tons of positive a- aspects. But I will also say, I remember I did this when I was at Ad Exchanger. I did this um, kind of like, I forget if it was weekly or monthly, Um, but I had to do this sort of marketer's note thing where I just wrote thoughts Mm -hmm. down on something. And I remember doing a piece, this is probably like 10 years ago or something, about the drain of talent at the top of those organizations, like those 
those kind of tech-driven, data-driven, trading desky style organizations. And I just listed them like by, by name, all of these people that I was watching leave those positions. So something wasn't working for those very senior people that were trying to do really interesting, innovative things. And probably every one of them has his or her own or their own story about why. Um, but it was very noticeable to me that they were losing these early pioneers um, that were in very senior positions. They were just like, I'm out. Did that? Um, talent drain, I guess. Was it? Did it all kind of happen at the same sort of time as well? Like, it was. It was clustered okay, yeah, into okay. a couple of years. Yeah, wow, okay. yeah it was. Wow. It was custom. I mean, I yeah. It was. It was noticeable yeah, to me. Yeah. Um, so something was happening again, and you know why at IPG versus at Omnicom versus you know uh, at Publicis. I'm sure that the answer is differed, but there must have been some level of dissatisfaction or frustration or disillusionment or it could have been any, or like, hey, you're not seizing the opportunity the way you should be, probably a million reasons. But that was that was worrisome mm. to me because it felt like these people who were really pushing the envelope were saying, enough, I can't, it's not, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and I think that's the challenge with the holding companies. You know, they are giant monster organizations, monster organizations, getting you know, kind of getting everybody aligned um, and moving in the same direction and, and a direction that you feel good about is challenging. And they're public too, right? Which, you know, having to report totally. quality. Okay. Just sticking with that point for a sec, like with regards to the talent drain, did you notice any kind of trends in terms of where people sort of ended up? Like, did they go ad tech side, platform side, just exit completely because they they they'd had enough by that point? No, they all they all are still in the industry, okay. uh, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, they all have gone on to do interesting things, like their consultancy, ad tech, publisher side, uh, independent consultancies. I mean, really, okay. uh, and some actually have landed back inside of agencies. Oh, okay, um, and and so I there was something happening at that sure. time. I think that was part of the reason why these mm. people were, were leaving. And, you know, I when I when I did this thing at Forrester and early, when I kind of, early on when I got there, maybe in the first year or so, wrote this piece that was pretty aggressively critical of the model. I remember. And kind of predicted. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I sort of predicted that they weren't going to last, but it was going to take a while. Um in their current form, you know, and it was so all of that swirl was sort of happening in the 2010 to 2013-ish, 2014-ish kind of period. Let's talk a bit more about, because I think the positive aspects, like being a bit more constructive here is, is interesting because so much of the reporting um, is on the, and discussion is on the sort of negative side, which we'll get to, but um let's take our time. Like, talk me through that kind of process, right, in terms of how we started to see that trading desk expertise in technology sort of cascade down throughout the kind of organizations. I guess that more decentralized um, sort of approach. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not as though the answer today is fully that everyone is decentralized sure. it and that it's in full, you know what yeah. I mean? So there's still lots of things inside these organizations that are centralized. Part of it is just let's cast around and trying to figure out, try and figure out what the right model is. So you'll see them sort of experiment with, 
you know, maybe on one client, it's a requirement that the people be embedded in the team because the client demands it. And so that happens. It might be that, you know, you still have some centralized group that's organ that's organized around data and technology decisions or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, it might be that you have some centralized group that's sort of the innovation group that's pushing the envelope and whatever. And now all the holding companies have their sort of various identity spines, not all of them, but basically. Um, and so those are kind of centralized functions. So, um, but in terms of the cascading outward, I think it was just a natural byproduct of time and experience where, again, you had very real examples all the time of clients saying, well, why? And the agency person being like, I have no idea. Let me go try talk to my trading desk person. You know, and clients being like, well, this sucks. Like, why is this taking so long? Like, what am I paying you yeah, for? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you know, so there was sort of a natural, um, I think, a, just a, a, a natural evolution toward this stuff making its way into the agencies because it kind of had to. And also because it was becoming more common, it was becoming more sophisticated, the tools were getting a little bit easier to use, all that kind of stuff was happening at the, you know, at the same time. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more from Joanna O'Connell. Let's let's change gears. Um, as more money started flowing through the agency trading desks, advertisers began sort of asking some hard-hitting questions. And the tougher question, the tougher those questions got, the more it became obvious, right, at least in some cases, that, you know, their funds weren't being used in their best interest. It, it, it seemed like... Uh, the money was being uh, kind of funneled into agency trading desks, whether or not it was the most suitable option for them. Um, you were in those discussions, right? Kind of how frustrated were, you know, those marketers, those advertisers about those those conflicts of interest? And I guess, you know, more interestingly, how did they respond? Well, I mean, part of it is that a lot of things were happening at once. You had pressure around efficiency, Right. You know, just do more with less or do it more efficiently, um, which really means do more with less. Let's be honest, um, because efficiency and effectiveness, not necessarily the same thing. They were, um, you know, looking at a market where there were starting to be tools that were available to anyone. So it wasn't as though they couldn't just get their own seat, you know, on an exchange and get a DSP relationship and get going. They could. Um, so that was also part of it. They were definitely worried about the transparency thing and, you know, how their money was being spent and so on and so forth. So a bunch of things were happening. They were they were also, you know, they had the ad tech vendors saying, oh, well, I can do it for you. You know, you need service? Like, cool, I got, I got you. I can help you with that. So, you know, and independent desks were, were popping up. So they had alternative options. So for a lot of reasons, I think they were going, hang on, like, I don't know that I like the way that this is working or at minimum, I just need to better understand how this is working. Um, so it's not, I think, as though one day every marketer woke up and went, agency training desk, what are you doing? I think it was just a bunch of things were happening at once that that caused them to start going, hmm, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, and it's, it's, it put, I think it really created a, a very unhealthy dynamic between the agencies and the brands for a long time, because it really fomented a lot of distrust that in some cases maybe was totally warranted and some cases wasn't, but there was genuine distrust that I think has taken a long, long time to start to 
heal. I, I don't know what, you know, I, I mean, listen, listen, there's always going to be tension between agencies and brands. Like one is paying the other, one's providing a service. The brand is always going to want it to be smarter, faster, you know, let's say more efficient. Uh, the agency is always going to want to be able to do more work, spend more time, you know, uh, kind of t- t- take more of the pie because they're both businesses, of course. Um, but I think it was just, it got to the place where it was just an unhealthy, unhealthy dynamic for a while. Why did you say some of it didn't, those criticisms from the buy side, from, from the advertiser side, didn't feel kind of warranted? Because I guess the the cynic in me at times like this, right, always sort of, uh, I always find that advertisers can talk out of both sides of their mouth, right? Like, uh, they like these models um, because they deliver, they're cheaper, right? So they, they, they allow them to buy advertising sort of more uh, efficiently. Um, but the moment some of the shadier aspects sort of, you know, get thrust into the spotlight, they tend to sort of make a quick exit or they sort of, you know, they have a keynote at some sort of conference and they sort of wag their, wag their finger. So, No, I mean, that's the challenge. Like, that is the challenge, that there are always going to be these, these sort of dimensions of tension um, that exist. So, you know, you also had clients that actually just really liked the performance and were like, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, not even like on a CPM basis, just it's performing. So, you know, just do your thing until somebody asks me a hard question internally or whatever. I'm delivering what I'm supposed to be delivering as a brand. Because by the way, a lot of a lot of the clients have quarterly, you know, financial results that they have to, you know, sh- show off in the light of day as well. Like everybody's under pressure. Um, but yeah, they do talk out of their side. They did talk out of the sides of their mouth sometimes. And so did the agencies. The agencies did the same thing. So I think what I'm saying is there was... Certainly, agencies were looking for opportunity to take margin. Certainly, I'm sure in their minds, they found ways to feel really comfortable and justify it. Certainly, I'm sure that there were sometimes some pretty, maybe some less um, some less above board things happening. I wouldn't say in general, the intent was necessarily malicious. I think it was, we need to make money and we're going to do it this way. And I wish, wish they'd been more transparent about it from the beginning. I wish they'd been clear with clients about why it was such a good thing versus a potential good thing versus, oh, it's just the next ad network. Like what a what a terrible way to sell this thing, you know, when it was really game changing um, instead. Just the fact that they weren't as transparent as maybe they could have been from the outset suggests that, you know, at least at the, the top of these organizations that, you know, they were... They knew what they were doing and they knew there was something a little bit underhand about the double dipping or that advertisers weren't going to be too pleased with it. Well, let's talk about the. So, listen, I, I am definitely not here to throw any individual holding company uh, CEO under the under the bus. Um, but I, I appreciate your question. And I'll just say probably. I mean, they're business people, right? Like. Every, everybody has probably some skeletons in their closet and that it goes well beyond <laughs> holding company executives. Um, but let's talk about the double dipping thing for a second. I, you know, so, you know, if, if I think we got to a, I'll say this, I think we got to a place where brands were saying, and I remember this is specifically from a, a client um, interview I did when I was doing research on, I think it was the in-housing topic, but he said, our model is trust, but verify. We have the agencies 
managing the contractual relationships with our ad tech vendors, um, but we have ironclad terms in our uh, contract that protect us from them doing something shady. And so this model of trust but verify, I think, was sort of the only path to get back to a place of of some level of comfort. Um, because, yeah, again, individual clients, individual holding companies where there maybe were stronger mandates that felt incredibly heavy handed, that felt problematic to the agency people and the clients, all that stuff was happening. What did the landscape look like after that, that kind of period and that sort of confluence of, of, of events had sort of changed the dynamic between, you know, advertisers and the sort of media agency trading this? I think it wasn't great for a while. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, kudos to the to the trade desk, the platform, the trade desk, for really sticking with their agency friendly platform. First of all, like, oh, it's pretty easy to use, and their agency friendly story. I think that gave them, you know, a huge advantage huge advantage. And you saw others that didn't do that as effectively, you know, in the ad tech space really suffer for it. Um, So clearly there was value in having a platform that was relatively easy to use that could be used by a lot of different types of agency people that made it not that difficult for them to spend the money programmatically, um, gave gave them a leg up. So programmatic obviously continued to grow and flourish during this time, like lots of money was being spent. But it just felt like an unpleasant, kind of unhealthy time in terms of the relationships between brands and agencies. And that's really when you started to hear the in-housing conversation get really loud, really loud. Mm. Because that was going to be the thing. I feel like it; those two points really stick in the mind for me. Like it paved the way for the in-housing thing, particularly around owning kind of contracts, not necessarily kind of hands-on keyboards in a lot of instances, but but having direct access to the platform so you, you could kind of trust but verify um but then also the kind of you know the trade desks are sent to, to where it is it is now rather than going direct to sort of brands you know it kind of stuck by agencies recognized that you know there was still a need for agencies when it came to actually running the day-to-day of those campaigns yeah i mean so much money flows through the yeah. agencies so yeah. much yeah totally yeah. Yeah. The in-housing thing is interesting. I did a bunch of research on that, both at Ad Exchanger and at, at Forrester. Um, and I think the important thing to always remember about in-housing is that it's very multidimensional. There's like a million shades of gray. And that when you talk about in-housing, you have to talk really specifically about what's being in-housed. So, you know, is it decisions around strategy? Is it decisions around an ownership of data? Is it about the technology decisions and the ownership, to your point, of the contracts? Is it about ad ops and hands-on keyboards? Every one of those can have a million shades of gray in terms of how brands are working with external partners like agencies. Um, But I do think this period, you know, and again, the sort of we can do it more efficiently um, story from brands or or belief from brands pushed a lot of brands to be like, oh, well, let's just do more stuff ourselves. I think that there's some maybe right-sizing that's ha- had to happen over the ensuing years because it's actually not just, you know, button pushing. It's actually quite complicated and you have to hire people and you have to retain those people and that's really hard. 
and the world moves, moves really fast and, you know, staying up with it is really hard. So it's not as though there was some perfect answer like, oh, you know, screw the agency. I'll just do it all myself. Like, Are you, are you worried, like, now that you sort of, you kind of look forward, are you sort of worried that history might not uh, repeat itself exactly, but it will bear a striking uh, resemblance when it comes to how media agencies, media agencies attempt to, to build profitable businesses around programmatic like like now i think uh you know we've seen a few efforts by the holding groups to reshape their programmatic operations this year you know you've got you know mark reed mentioned a recent reorganization at wpp to to compete better with ad tech vendors through gpm ipg has made similar changes with, with, with Kinesa. is there a danger that um you know whilst lessons have clearly been learned um you know, that some of these things could repeat themselves. You know, we've got things like SPO, curated marketplaces, post-auction discounts. Could they potentially be just yeah. echoes of the same questionable practices that caused problems for the trading desk model in the past? Um, I mean, the really practical answer is people only get away with stuff if you let them. So, um, you know, and, and maybe the nicer, maybe more thoughtful answer is, I think brands are, you have marketers inside of big brands that are so much more sophisticated, so much more aware, grew up in the ranks of digital advertising, just generally have um, a better understanding of the presence of these things and the and the opportunity that they create, and the challenges and all, you know, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So that's one thing. Um, and so I, and that's a big important thing because it leads me to, to believe that back to the sort of trust but verify model, that's not going anywhere, you know. Um, but, you know, certainly that's part of, you know, groups like R3 exist for that reason as well, though, to be able to say, client, have you thought through all the things that you need to put in a contract with your agency to ensure that they are always operating in a way that you are comfortable with um, and or you have the right to go look at what they're doing? Because, it, you know, it's not as though the clients are just sitting around all day worrying about what the agencies are doing with every dollar. So, yeah, history doesn't repeat itself. Um, I guess the short answer is that's the story of humanity. We're very good at making the same mistakes over and over and over <laughs> since the dawn of time. So, of course, there will be some of that stuff, for sure. And again, in a, and in a society where you know, capitalism and quarterly res results drive decisions or certainly shape decisions, holding companies are always going to be looking for ways to be more efficient and more profitable. Um, it's really, I think, up to both parties to keep each other honest. I don't mean to sound totally naive. I don't think I am as naive as I was 20 years ago. And so I'm not here to say that everything that the holding companies does is, you know, crystal clean or perfect. Um, but I also think, you know, clients put a lot of pressure on them, which can make it challenging from a business standpoint sometimes to be able to deliver amazing work on very low margins. What, based on all of that, then what does, can we even still use the term agency trading desk when talking about, you know, how the, how the holding groups go to market when it comes to, to kind of programmatic, these days. To be honest, I have hated that term for years yeah, okay. because trading desk feels so 
we're, we're still trying to explain to people that programmatic is more than open RTB. And it's just, oh my God, it's like the most annoying mis, you know, misunderstanding in digital advertising, at least for me, of the last 15 years. Trading desk implies that somehow, you know, they're sitting around making these tiny micro trades on individual impressions. And and sure, you know, the the idea of being able to make really smart decisions and data-driven decisions and midday optimization and real-time algorithmic-driven optimization, all that's true and, and real, but that's not really what programmatic is anymore and kind of can't be. I mean, we have this whole you know, overlay of what's happening with privacy and the deprecation of the third-party cookie and mobile ad IDs and, you know, the what that's doing to a lot of the kind of behavioral targeting of the past and retargeting, all of the changes that that will make to how this stuff can work. You also have the explosion of CTV where the, you know, dynamics of supply and demand are going to be different. CTV is also part of the package of upfronts. Like, there's just different dynamics at play that will require that um, that programmatic people think and operate differently. So again, I, for years I've hated that term, agency trading desk. So let's get rid of the, the term agency trading desk moving forward. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, Joanna. All right. Uh- <laughs> oh, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you agree, for real. I'm glad you agree. It just feels wrong. Yeah, and to your point, like it's, it's evolved beyond that now. Right, it's a lot more ubiquitous um, these days than it than it ever was. So, um, do you, based on that, then do you how do how would do you think the 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 way holding groups go to market around programmatic has kind of shifted? Obviously, you know it's in a constant state of flux because that's advertising, right? But you know, are you seeing any? what conclusions, I guess, is what I'm getting at, could, would, would you draw from, from, well, from how programmatic is, is in the agency holding groups these days? Has been better. I was going to say something slightly different, which is they have new shiny objects to be excited they about. They do indeed. So, right? I mean, so several of them, as you well know, acquired um, database marketing companies with, with data assets over the little bit of a, oh, I want one. Oh, I should get one because the other guy, you know, there's a little bit of that. It felt like. Um, happening for a while there. And that's like a very shiny new toy for the holding companies to be able to say, you know, don't worry, client, I have this really strong data asset and I have this identity spine and blah, 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 blah. I can do all these things for you. Um, and there's, I I think there's probably some spectrum of lots of merit and no merit at all, merit at all, <laughs> upon which those things maybe live um, and, and will be adopted. So programmatic almost feels like, um, well, of course we do that. That's just, you know what I mean? It doesn't feel so special and fancy anymore. Um, it's just sort of a requirement of, of doing business. I will say, I do feel like I still see it often as like a separate line item, you know, negotiations okay. or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know how I, I have mixed feelings about that because it still feels like it's relegating it to being something yeah. super different. You know, versus, well, actually, you can do a guaranteed deal that runs through programmatic pipes. Is it the smoothest thing? Why not? Like, is there work to do? Definitely. Um, But treating it as some sort of weird separate line item still feels to me like, you know, like a a relic of the past. And yet I think it still happens a lot. All right. Um, I think that's a good point to sort of wrap up. So thank you for a great conversation, Joanna. 
It was my pleasure. I hope um, I gave everybody some useful food for thought in this history lesson. Thank you so much for listening to Digiday's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the Digiday podcast. Come back for the fourth and final part of our series, where we'll be talking to Anna Milicevic about the current state of AdTech. During that episode, we'll discuss the period of time that saw AdTech try to recalibrate itself for these more privacy-conscious times and what that meant for big tech. If you want to know even more about this disruption in the digital media space, visit digiday.com to read our oral history of ad tech. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already, because every Tuesday we have our regularly scheduled Digiday podcast hosted by Kelly Barber and Kamiko McCoy.